And good day to you. I'm Carl Falk. This is the Falcon Around Podcast. Hope you had a good week. We had sports this weekend. And maybe we should enjoy it while we can. Yeah, a lot going on. The NFL's top 100 list is out. And how dare you put a quarterback that people don't believe is good on that list. Twitter outrage at its finest. The NHL and NBA bubbles seem to be going in the right direction. We'll talk about that. There's a new name for that football team that resides in Washington. Oh, wait, I just gave it away. It's the Washington football team. Catchy. I, I got to say, catchy. Washington, the Washington, if they could just put Washington, the flip it around, it'd be WTF. I think that'd be much better because, you know, it works better with Dan Snyder. You know, seriously, what the fuck, dude? You had a week and a half and the best you came up with is the Washington football team. And on the press release, it still said Redskins. But I'm not going to start there. No, I just wanted to throw that in, get it off my chest early, because, well, that's you know one of those things that needs to get off your chest early. The Major League Baseball season began last Thursday, two games, and predictably, the Yankees-Nationals game. You know, sometimes it rains, sometimes... It pours. I I, I was amazed to watch this game, and there was a threat of rain in the broadcast. For the record, Garrett Cole's Yankee debut goes down as a complete game one hitter. His only hit that he gave up was a home run, so he did allow the one run. But the torrential downpour that happened in the second half of that game, I think it was the sixth inning, when it started to deluge, if you will, was so symbolic of the year we're having. There is nothing normal about 2020. This year has been a disaster from the start. I remember, and I've told the story many times, I went to the mailbox January 2nd to pick up my mail, and uh, the first day that you could get mail of the year, Get one piece of mail, it's my property tax bill. I'm like, great. This is an excellent start to the year. Two weeks later, I got laid off by iHeartRadio. Two months later, the world is shut down by pandemic. And here we are still trying to get back to the new normal, if you will. And it's just been a joke. It's a, there's a punchline a day. So I guess for somebody like me who tries to find content to entertain you all and inform you all, I should be thankful for 2020 because it is the gift that keeps giving. Every day there's something new that, hey, did you see that? You know, yesterday here in Rochester, our mayor accused a local congressman of racism and intimidation. That's a good one. You know, that's not normal. That's not something you see every day. I mean, that is one of those that will leave a, a congressman cross-eyed, if you will. It's, it's just bizarre. So, yeah, 2020 starts with Scherzer against Cole, a deluge, and you're like, yep, that's 2020. Well, we are now about five days into the Major League Baseball season, and the story is not the fact that every team started either 1-2 and two or 2-1. Two and one. Nobody started 3-0. and oh. I think it was the first time in 87 years or something like that 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 has happened. No, the story is the Florida Marlins. And you think to yourself, how the hell would anyone be talking about the Florida Marlins? Because 
you know, they are if you're, they're not one of the least interesting teams in baseball, they are one of the three or four least interesting teams in baseball. The Marlins, who are headed up by former Yankee icon Derek Jeter, who, although he's part of the sport, remains, you know, kind of sight unseen. Every now and then you kind of, oh, yeah, Jeter owns them. That's right. Forgot about that. As a matter of fact, when he issued a statement last night, I, I was like, oh, that's right, Jeter. Yeah. Well, the Marlins played the Phillies over the weekend, and they won two out of three to their credit. Don Mattingly, who I think is a very good manager, gets the most out of what he has to work with, which isn't a ton. And they play a pretty good brand of baseball for the most part. Well, the problem is that the Marlins are hanging out down in Miami where COVID is running rampant these days. And the Marlins had a few players test positive before Sunday's game. Four players test positive before Sunday's game. The players in the management took a, they went to a text exchange and decided to take a vote. Now, this is like, you know, you and your boys got a tea time. The sky's looking a little gray. What do you think? I'm in if you want to play. Yeah, I could do it. Yeah, why not? Let's give it a shot. And you go play golf and hope for the best. That's kind of why the Marlins decided what was going to happen Sunday afternoon against the Phillies. They took a text poll. I'll play. Yeah, I feel good. Nothing wrong with me. So in spite of the fact that four players out of their traveling 30 tested positive, they went ahead and played the Phillies. Well, by Monday, those four people had become 15 people, 13 players, 11 additional. One of the first four was a coach and then another coach. So, you know, you had 13 total Monday morning. Just now, just before we started doing this broadcast, Ken Rosenthal tweeted out that four more Marlins, that's 15 now of the 30 players that have traveled with the Marlins, plus the two coaches, have tested positive for COVID-19. The Phillies and Orioles were scheduled to play in Miami this weekend. That's or this last couple of days. That's not happening. To the best of my knowledge, the Marlins are still holed up in a hotel or an incubator, if you will, in Philadelphia. The Phillies, for their part, were supposed to play against the Yankees. And the Yankees-Phillies game from last night, Monday night, was canceled. The Phillies-Yankees game for tonight, Tuesday night, has been postponed. And to quote Joel Sherman on Twitter just a little while ago, at this point, no Phillies have tested positive. So at this point, Major League Baseball has one huge problem. One of their teams is incapable of playing baseball because they have a corona outbreak. This is what you would consider a worst-case scenario for Major League Baseball, and it's leadership. Leadership, because they really don't have any. The leadership for Major League Baseball is a rowboat without a paddle, or maybe with one paddle. It just goes in circles and nothing good happens. Rob Manfred's clueless approach to the negotiations for this have set up a situation where there is no wiggle room for a pause. Remember, he said after the negotiations finished that 60 games was going to be what it was. 
that's what the owners decided they were willing to play. I should say willing to pay because it all came down to what they were willing to give the players and prorated salaries. Remember, the players, they wanted a 118-game schedule, an 82-game schedule. They wanted many more games. They'd make more money. But the owners used a delay tactic in negotiating to get to the point where if a season's going to happen, it can only be 60 games, and it's going to happen between these dates. That was Rob Manfred and ownership's approach. Because of that, they have now painted themselves in a corner. Major League Baseball doesn't have the luxury of time that they need right now because this season's got to happen, and it's got to get in and get done. Well, you can't pause the season when you have a deadline for the season. And that was on Rob Manfred and their greed. So you can't just shut down baseball right now if you plan to have a season, even though one of its teams is basically out of commission until further notice. Now, the Marlins have a 60-player pool. So there are seemingly 30 other players training, I believe, in Miami. I believe that's where their player pool is located and working out and ready to be called up. So theoretically, of course, the Marlins could – They've got 15 healthy players. Call up 15 players from their pod, if you will, and get them to create the new 30-man roster and play baseball. Uh, A lot of those players are double-A and single-A players, and some are very young top prospects that teams add to their player pool because they didn't want them to lose a year of development. If you have an opportunity to have a kid play for you for the year, then it works out well. You continue to monitor his development, but that's not a true minor league system. You know, let's think about a normal year. You have injuries, your triple A, double A, single A teams have been playing games. They're all healthy. They're all on pace. They're all stretched out. You can call them up and find a replacement. That's not baseball 2020. That's baseball normal, and normal's gone. Never will happen again. The minor league system is gone. It will be different when and if it happens again. It's going to not allow teams to have players at the ready to call up. So the Marlins are out of commission. That means the Orioles aren't playing as well. The Phillies and Yankees aren't playing as well. No word on going forward when any of those teams get back. Now, again, I mentioned that the Phillies reportedly had no positive tests. So is it just an extra precaution to keep the Phillies off the field for a couple days? And do you have the luxury, because of the time constraints, set up by management, set up by ownership, that would safely allow those tests all to come back and make sure there are nothing? And Here's where I think the lack of knowledge of this virus by everybody is a huge problem. You're not testing positive. You are asymptomatic. Does that mean you definitely don't have it? I don't know the answer to that. You're not showing that you have it. But does that mean in three or four days you may show that you do have it? There's so many unknowns about this virus and It's why the world is still largely 
running at about 30% of what it normally was running at. And that's why baseball, with their greed, with their insistence on a 60-game season, painted themselves into this corner. Shame on you, Rob Manfred. Shame on the owners. This is what you set yourself up to do, and you set yourself up to fail. Now, i got to ask this question. The Marlins, again, out of sight, out of mind. We think of the Marlins when they play the Yankees, the Red Sox, the Mets, a, a team that somebody else cares about. How many Marlins fans have you met in your life? Uh, who do you know that you go, dude, your team sucks? Nobody. There are no Marlins fans. This franchise has been a disaster since Major League Baseball awarded it to Jeffrey Loria, one of the worst owners in sports. They fleece the city of Miami for a new stadium, put it in the middle of Little Havana in Miami, where they thought they would attract the tons of Cuban immigrants who would come over who absolutely love the game. And then before they even play a game, their first manager at the time when they built this new stadium, Ozzie Guillen, made statements about Castro that offended many of those Cuban people who live around the stadium. So they immediately checked out from this team. It has just been one disaster after another. And now Derek Jeter's mess, he's traded away what was a great outfield. You think about the outfield the Marlins had. MVP winner Christian Yelich, of course, Giancarlo Stanton, who Yankee fans wish Cheater had kept, and Marcelo Zuna, who's bounced around a little bit, but he beat my Mets on Saturday night with a, uh, or tied my Mets with a solo home run that led to a, an extra inning, well, whatever you call it now, when you put a guy, it's a softball. Girl softball finish is what I'll call it, because that's where it comes from. Girl softball. Terrible, by the way, and I'll get to that. But, yeah, Jeter gave them away, and look at the prospects he got back from them. Yeah, there aren't any. Who do you look at in the Marlins organization, and, yeah, this kid could be a stud. Jeter got him for, no, he got nothing. He got salary relief. Major League Baseball approved a new ownership group who wasn't willing to spend money and was just going to do more of the same. The Marlins are disaster, but that's not the point of the story. I, I get a little sideways at times. Point of the story is, what if this is the New York Yankees? What if this is the Chicago Cubs or the L.A. Dodgers, a real MLB team, a team that Major League Baseball really cares about? Would you pause the season then? Would you just say, hey, it's only one team. We'll get to the season. We're all good. No, you wouldn't. There's no chance Major League Baseball reacts the same if it's the Dodgers, Yankees, Cubs, Red, one of the marquee teams. It simply would not happen. But because it's the Marlins, there is no schedule integrity because the Marlins suck anyway. Marlins aren't going to be one of the 85 teams that make the playoffs this year. Oh, yeah. Did you hear that they expanded the playoffs? 16 of the 30 teams will make the playoffs this year. Baseball has become a laughingstock. This is ridiculous. And it's all on Rob Manfred and ownership group. So there's that. The Marlins mess isn't going to get better anytime soon. But the handling of it from the people above has really highlighted 
how ineffective the leadership is. And, and with all that's going on in the world, and we, we see it in every walk of life, whether you live in New York State and you're, you're dealing with a guy who can't wait to shut everything down, or you're, you're living in another country who's, or another state who runs after a guy who's just has no holds barred, no rules whatsoever. Our leadership has never been more important than it is now in every aspect. Whether you work for a company that's trying to come up with ways to safely implement rules to allow its employees and its business to go forward, whether you're talking about government, sports, whatever it is, leadership. In Major League Baseball, and I can't believe I'm going to say this because Gary Bettman is still employed, has the absolute worst leadership in all of sports. Rob Manfred is a clown. He is a joke. And this is a Central New York guy. He grew up not far from where I did. He went to college with my sister at LeMoyne College before transferring to Cornell. This is a guy I should love, but he is so rudderless. It's it's mind-boggling, and, and the sport of baseball is following him, and it's almost like if you ever went skiing and you skied behind a guy through the woods, he hit the tree, and you did too because you followed him. That's what Major League Baseball is doing. It is just a disaster, and it's not getting better anytime soon. Yeah, let we got four out. Let's just take a text ball. What do you think? You want to play? Yeah, I feel good. Why not? Unbelievable. There's another aspect to this season that's not exactly a net positive, and it's something that's been on my mind going forward. If you go back and listen to my past podcast, you will have heard me talk about the potential for pitching injuries in this shortened season. And again, you listen, you know me. I'm a Mets fan. I love the Mets. And Jacob deGrom is, simply put, one of the three greatest pitchers in Mets history at this point. And I think he may be getting better. His outing the other day was electric, although on a pitch limit because of a sore back. He was lights out. Eight Ks and five innings. Of course, he allowed no runs. And, of course, he got no run support in that one as well. I'm, I'm looking forward to him winning his third Cy Young without a victory this season. It's likely to happen. The guy has just been fantastic, but I'm frankly worried for the safety of all pitchers. And I would love it if DeGrom had opted out because if, and when baseball does come back to normal, I want him to be able to pitch for a long, long time. And I'm very worried about pitcher injuries going forward. And I said this long before this past weekend. Well, here we are five days in, to the Major League Baseball season. Marcus Stroman of the Mets is out because of a calf injury. Corey Kluber is out because of a shoulder injury. Justin Verlander, who's never had elbow issues in his life, and, well, if you read between the lines, he has one now, but it's been reported he is out for a few weeks because of a forearm strain. It was initially reported as an elbow injury and that he would miss the remainder of the season. He took to Twitter to say, no, that's not true. I don't have a, a, an elbow injury that's going to keep me out for the season. Well, forearm strain in baseball is code for elbow issue. Elbow issue means potential Tommy John. Potential Tommy John means you see you in 12 to 18 months. 
Justin Verlander has been shut down. Ken Giles, closer for the Blue Jays, forearm strain. Clayton Kershaw is on the injured list because of a back. And Steven Strasburg missed his first start and went to the injured list because he has a nerve issue in his hand. That's potentially a serious thing as well. I remember reading where hand numbness, finger numbness, could lead to that thoracic outlet syndrome where they have to displace a nerve in your shoulder. Many pitchers don't come back from that. So right there is a list of six very good starting pitchers that are already injured. You've not taken into account guys like DeGrom, who there was some concern about, other pitchers as well who've been on pitch limits because they're not healthy. Eduardo Rodriguez, uh, the Red Sox best pitcher, no sign when he'll be back as his post issues of COVID-19 are keeping him off the field. So there is so much going on in baseball, and it's largely attributed to two things, COVID-19, which we all knew was going to be part of it, and the ownership negotiating committee saying, we're going to do this, we're going to stall, we're going to back them into a corner, give them a date, it's a drop-dead date, if they don't agree by then, then we're screwed, but they will because they want their money. Well, it happened. They agreed. They got their money. And now millions and millions of dollars in pitching arms are likely to be affected because of ownership's greed. It's absolutely shameful and ridiculous. And it ends with Rob Manfred. Clown. Absolute clown. But last week on the podcast, we talked about the Toronto Blue Jays and their play. Again, COVID-19 is creating havoc with the Blue Jays and travel. And, you know, let's remember one more bash of ownership before I move on, that the idea of playing in a pod was dismissed early on. Reason being is that ownership decided, well, if the games are played within our stadiums, then we're able to move forward and and show the games on TV and all our in-stadium advertising and sponsorship, we could still get that money. That's why the pod idea was thrown out early on. I think it's probably a good time to point out that the NBA pod seems to be working great, exhibition games going on, things like that. The NHL exhibition games begin today, as a matter of fact, zero positive tests. This travel and the lack of a pod in baseball will be a factor, and NFL should be paying attention as well. Well, Major League Baseball's lack of control was a concern for the government of Canada. They're smart, apparently, and can read between the lines, and decided, no, the Blue Jays are not going to play in Toronto. So they were homeless. And in Buffalo, Salem Stadium, the home of their AAA team, was like, hey, pick me. I'm available. Come and play here. And all the fans of Buffalo were all excited. Jays Mafia. And then the Blue Jay players said, no, we don't, we don't want to play in Buffalo. We'll play in Pittsburgh. And the Pirates organization's like, well, we could use some money. You want to rent our stadium when we're not there? Sure. And the city officials in Pittsburgh thought, well, that's one hotel or two hotels we could sell out. That's tax dollars. Sure. State of Pennsylvania said, oh, no, we're not having that. Won't happen. Not going to happen. Go elsewhere. 
So the Baltimore Orioles raise their hand. Pick me. Yeah. Meanwhile, Buffalo's in the background like a jilted little lover, wishing it had been picked. You know, this is like the kid at the dance who's hoping he gets picked. Well, guess what? They didn't get picked the first time. Didn't get picked the second time. In Baltimore, they were all for it. And then the Maryland officials said, no, not going to happen. We can't have this. Nope, not going to be approved. With nowhere left to go, they decided, hey, you know, Buffalo, we could go play there. So as we speak, improvements are being made to Salem Field. The lighting's being redone. They're reworking the locker rooms. Apparently, there's going to be other locker rooms, maybe even use the arena, Key Bank Arena locker rooms. There are ways to get this done. The deal was put helped put together by officials from Pagula Sports and Entertainment. And you might think to yourself, you know, why would the Pagulas care if the Jays played in Buffalo? Isn't that somewhat of a competition? You're bringing more competition in for the teams you already own, the Bills and Sabres. And it's not like tax dollars or it's not like stadium dollars will be spent because nobody can go. As a matter of fact, a lot of games are blacked out in Buffalo, so nobody can even watch the Buffalo Blue Jays. But the real reason the Pagulas wanted this to happen, they own a hotel that's not doing any business right next to Key Bank Arena, right down the street from Salem Stadium. They knew if this happened, they could offer their hotel to the Blue Jays and the visiting teams. So they get business out of it. Smart. I've always said the Pagulas are smart. They just don't handle things smartly. So the Pagulas help put this thing together. And once again, the Blue Jays, with nobody else wanting them, look back around and that kid at the dance still sitting over there. I pick me. Yeah. And they did. So we're going to have Buffalo baseball in Buffalo this year. Apparently the Marlins ironically are the first game in Buffalo. That won't happen till August 11th, giving time for the people in Buffalo to get that stadium up to major league specifications. But it's tax dollars for the city of Buffalo and the state of New York. The taxi squad will then train here in Rochester at Frontier Field. So it is a good thing for Western New York. I'm not sure how big of a deal it is because, again, we can't go see it. Now, if that changes in any way, count me in. The Mets and Blue Jays play. I guarantee if that happens and I can go up there and watch the game, I'm going. And you think about going to watch a game in a smaller stadium, 20,000-seat stadium, not a bad seat in the house. It'd be fantastic. So there is a lot of good in Western New York that goes along with this. But I did find it a little sad for the city of Buffalo that, again, they were the kid at the dance that nobody wanted to dance with. And at the end, they were the only one left to dance with. So they got an opportunity. Typical Buffalo, typical Western New York. But, hey, Buffalo's a major league city now. So the Buffalo Blue Jays, Jays Mafia, bring it on. A few other things I wanted to mention from the weekend in baseball. It was shown on Sunday that the New York Yankees have a star player. They have more than one star. Let's be honest. They have several great players. But the true face of that franchise 
is not the big guy who plays in right field. As fun as it is to watch Aaron Judge absolutely annihilate baseballs, he is not the stir that straws the drink. He's not the Yankees' best player. And in the new era of spending money because of pandemic, loss of revenue, if the Yankees are going to make a choice, which young player to invest in, sorry, Yankee fans, it is not Aaron Judge. It is their new shortstop and former second baseman, Glaber Torres. Torres is an absolute stud. The kid is a star in the making. He is going to be, if the Yankees choose to make him so, the face of that franchise for years to come. He is a complete player. He's a clutch player. You saw the home run, an absolute shot. He hit off Patrick Corbin, who was dealing Sunday afternoon. To me, it makes it simple. You invest in the guy who can play a couple more important positions, A. He can also show up and be there for a lot of games. Judges had injury problems. And he's about four years younger than Aaron Judge. So all of those signs point to me. If I'm the guy deciding I can only afford one because of the lack of revenues over the next couple of years, Sorry to say, it's not Aaron Judge that I'm investing in. I am investing in Glaber Torres. I mentioned this earlier, the new extra inning rule. Got to see it a little bit this weekend. Indians pitcher Mike Clevenger was very outspoken about it. Good for him because this is stupid. This is a bastardization of the game. You play nine innings. You put a runner on second. The Indians lost the game with not without a official at bat it's ridiculous and teams don't know how to defense this now to me you put the runner on second you have to then give a free pass unless there's a bad hitter up first which isn't likely because if that's the case you're going to pinch hit for you then have to walk the next batter to create a double play situation you're also then forcing the offensive team to think about a bunt You know how analytics people think about bunts. They hate them. But in this situation, it almost forces it. So for years of people bitching about pitchers hitting, you don't want to see a pitcher's hit. Well, pitchers bunt more than they hit. If you don't like that, how are you going to like this? The bunt is becoming a huge part of baseball in 2020. Sorry, I'm out. It's stupid. This is a dumb rule. I understand the point of the rule because of, again, the condensed season, the lack of ability to bring arms up. If you go along game, you use guys, you send them down, you bring up fresh people the next day. That's not likely in this scenario that the owners have created. But this is stupid. You've got games being decided by a silly rule that, Girls softball, when they have tournaments and you have an hour to play a game, this is how they decide games, to keep the tournament on schedule, to shorten the game. This is all about shortening the game. It's bastardizing the game. It's not shortening it. This is horrible, and this is indicative of where baseball's leadership is at this point. Any team that loses this way this year is going to look back and say, man, those five games we let, we lost because there's a runner on second is just an absolute joke. It is probably 
the reason we're one of the like three or four teams that didn't make the playoffs. Just crazy. Shohei Otani, one of the more interesting players in baseball, made his return from Tommy John surgery. Well, I guess you could say he made his return. Took the mound on Sunday. Faced six batters, gave up three hits, three walks. The 99-mile-an-hour fastball was at 92. I don't know if Otani is going through a dead arm period, if he's not healthy, what the case may be. But again, 2020, Angels, shut him down. Don't let him throw again. Save him for next year. Let him hit. He's a fine hitter, and he could be an all-star as a hitter. Wait till next year to get him back there. And Nelson Cruz, who is 40, is the best player in baseball, apparently. He had a first weekend series that was absolutely ridiculous. Seven for 13, three home runs, 10 RBIs. He had 41 home runs last year at age 39. He's at 404 for his career. The way he's going, three more years, he might be at 500. If that's the case, does Nelson Cruz become a Hall of Fame candidate? Never really thought of him that way, but it's starting to look like it could be a possibility because he is clearly ageless, 40 and still raking. Shift gears to the NFL and the big story this week, and I love this. The NFL Network traditionally and annually comes out with their top 100 player list. It's decided on by the players. They vote in. They release the players in blocks of 30. And when you get the players released, there's a reaction. Keaton Allen was very pissed off that players were put ahead of him. He took to Twitter to voice his outrage about where he was ranked. Players take this seriously. So does the media. And for whatever reason, people put way more stock in a ranking than they need to. This is an opinion. You know, this, this is nothing more than a thousand guys like me getting together and saying, you know, we're going to rank starting quarterbacks. And then we put a list out there and people lose their damn minds because that's our list. Well, Bill's quarterback, Josh Allen, was number 87. And you would have thought Josh Allen was the guy who, I, I don't know, find a crime, find a heinous crime. You would have thought that's what Josh Allen did. Twitter hates Josh Allen because they want to be right. Twitter hates Josh Allen because before he was drafted, they said he can't play in this league. He can't be a good starting quarterback. He doesn't have the ability to do so. But Josh Allen, through two years, has shown improvement and shown some abilities that Twitter, when he was drafted, didn't know he had, namely the ability to run the football. He's also, again, improved, and he led the Bills to the playoffs last year. Maybe he didn't lead them there, but he quarterbacked them there. Maybe that's a better way because they were in the playoffs because of the strength of a very good defense. But Josh Allen, at 87, set Twitter on fire. And, of course, Bills Mafia, if you talk bad about their quarterback, you're going to hear from them. I want to play a clip from a guy I don't particularly care for, Colin Cowherd. 
Listen to what he said about Josh Allen's selection to the NFL's top 100 list. So I look at this list of players. Levante David of the the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, a linebacker, number 100. If he's the 100 best player in this league, the NFL's in good shape because that dude can just play like he's one of the best young linebackers in football, and they have him at 100. But 13 spots ahead of him, they have Josh Allen, the quarterback for Buffalo. I mean, come on now. (laughs) Big, strong, get it. Runs over people, big arm. I get it. Josh Allen's not a top 100 player in the NFL. Come on now. Now, again, players look at him. He's 6'6". He can run. And I think he has the strongest arm in the NFL. But great players do not unravel against the best teams or coaches. Josh Allen has played the Patriots three times. His completion percentage is 48%. His passer rating is 56. And he has more picks than touchdowns. That's not what Mahomes or Russell Wilson... That's not what they look against look like against New England. Now, I'm not saying New England's not a hard out. I, you know, go ask Jared Goff. They're a tough out. But great football players. Ronnie Stanley is on this list. He's a left tackle. When Ronnie Stanley, if he plays Khalil Mack, he's not going to unravel. Laramie Tunsil's not going to unravel against a good edge rusher. Now, I'm not saying you'll have your best Sunday, but in 27 NFL starts, Josh Allen has completed 56% of his throws. That's atrocious. That is terrible. I know he can run. Great. But that's not a top 100 football player in the NFL. Um, uh, By the way, uh, Kyler Murray is below Josh Allen. At this point, I would say this about Josh Allen. Josh Allen has a really good coach. And an un- I think they have the best defense in the league. I really do. I think it's better top to bottom than San Francisco. It doesn't have the stars you know or watch on television. But don't confuse yourself. There's 1,700 players in the NFL. I would make the argument Josh Allen is not a top 200 player today. He's not. If Levante David, the linebacker for the Bucks, is 100, Josh Allen's not a top 200 player in the NFL. He just looks the part. That is just half of it. That may, that may not even be half of it in the NFL. So there you have Colin Cowherd's opinion of Josh Allen being in the NFL top 100 list. Western New York, you could put Colin Cowherd right where you have Bon Jovi on the do not listen to list. Eliminate him from your daily listening experience because he spoke bad about your quarterback. Let me point some things out about Cowherd. First, prior to that, he used an analogy of NFL or NBA players, how they like Russell Westbrook better than they do Steph Curry. Talked about Steph Curry being one of the great players in the history of the game. Really? Great player. Not great shooter. Great players. Steph is one of the greatest shooters I've ever seen. He's not in the top 25 greatest players of all time. He won championships because he was on a great team and had one of the best seasons ever because a guy who is in the top 10 probably all-time, Kevin Durant, joined his team and carried that team to the title. Steph's fun to watch. Steph can shoot the lights out. He's not one of the all-time great players. He's one of the all-time most overrated players in NBA history. Russell Westbrook, he's a guy that Colin Coward hates 
So any chance he gets to take a shot at him, he does. And he did so, setting up the Josh Allen thing. Here's another thing about Cowherd. Yes, you heard what he said about Josh Allen. But if you listen to his show, you know that he absolutely loves Sam Darnold. Sam Darnold's a superstar, according to Colin Cowherd. He is a can't-miss project. He is a guy who you build a team around. I'm going to show you the stats of Colin Cow. I'm sorry, of Josh Allen and Sam Darnold. Allen's quarterback record through two years is 15 and 12. Darnold's is 11 and five. Now, 11 and five. Yes, the Jets have been a bad team, but supporters like Cowherd of Darnold point to last year after he came back from mono, his second big injury of his career. He was six and two. He was lights out. Do you know who the Jets played in the second half last year and who they beat and who they lost to? This is great Sam Darnold quarterback play. They beat the New York Giants. The Giants had won two games last year. They beat the Washington Redskins. They had three wins last year. They beat the Raiders, who had seven wins. They beat the Dolphins, who had five wins. They also beat the Steelers, who had eight wins, but the Steelers didn't have a quarterback. So take that for what it's worth. And the last of those six wins came against the Bills, In week 17, game 16, where the Bills starters did not play. It was an awful, awful football game that the Jets squeaked out a victory. They also lost to the Ravens, which there's no crime. Lamar Jackson, the Ravens had a great year last year. And the Bengals, you know who had the first overall pick last year in the NFL draft? The Cincinnati Bengals. You know why? Because they had the worst record. In football, yet the Jets lost to them with Sam Darnold. Darnold's completion percentage through two years is 59.9. Josh Allen's, as you heard, an abysmal 56.3. Again, Darnold's great. Allen's not a top 200 player. Darnold is thrown for almost 5,900 yards. Allen only 5,200 yards. So Darnold's thrown for about 700 yards more. So remember that. Allen's thrown for 30 touchdowns and had only 21 interceptions. Darnold, 36 touchdowns, but 28 interceptions. Allen's quarterback rating of 78.2 is way lower than the 81.1 of Sam Darnold. Again, Darnold's great. Allen's not a top 200 player. When you talk about Josh Allen, you have to bring into account his rushing statistics. And through two years, Josh Allen has rushed for 1,141 yards, 17 touchdowns. Sam Darnold's rushed for 200 yards and three touchdowns. So if you add the yardage totals to Allen and Darnold, Darnold's run, or Darnold's accounted for 6,100 yards. Allen's accounted for 6,300 yards. Yeah, that's weird, Colin. More yardage. You had the 17 touchdowns to Josh Allen's 30. You have 47 touchdowns that Allen has accounted for. Add the three to the 36, that's 39. So a guy who's great, Sam Darnold, really 
is either not that much statistically better, certainly not as durable through the first two years as Josh Allen. And Allen is someone who can't play. He's not a top 200 quarterback. I also have to point this out about Cowan. One thing he does very well, I might add, is find a statistic to fit his narrative. You see this with all walks of life. You can find things to make your argument better. You can find a way for your argument to appear right. Let's find Josh Allen number that that fits my narrative. Well, he, he didn't do very well against the Patriots. Yeah, yeah, that's it. So those are the numbers he showed. Well, gee, how many quarterbacks have done well against the Patriots? The Patriots had the best defense in the league last year. And I don't think it was all that close. Bill Belichick versus a young quarterback, it's a mismatch. And Allen is a project. Now, in the last game of the year in Foxborough, Allen played well in the first half. He missed some opportunities late, but also made some big-time plays. If you watch that game and you watch some of the throws he hit on, It's not that Josh Allen can't play. It's that Josh Allen isn't all the way there yet. And because of that, the people who have the narrative that Coward have, they use that as their evidence that the kid can't play. He certainly can play. To what level? We're going to find out this year. Because it is all on Josh Allen. And I'll tell you why in a second. Two other bills made the top 100 list. Tredavious White came in at number 47. New Bill, Stephon Diggs, at number 54. Three players make the top 100. Again, I've said this about this roster many times. This roster is very deep. It is very competitive. It's very balanced. But it is lacking one thing, and that's superstar players. They've got two and a half, if you give Josh Allen that half. Diggs is a superstar Tredavious White is a superstar. I think Tremaine Edmonds this year, if football's played, has a chance to step forward and become a superstar. They need more high-end talent to push them over the hump. So we'll talk a lot more about the Bills in a second. The Bills, they did make some moves this week. They are reporting to camp. Traditionally, here we are, end of July, and again, you know, this is – where I would be spending my mornings out at St. John Fisher watching the Bills practice. Well, that's not going to happen for a couple of reasons. I'm no longer employed in radio, A, but B, the Bills now will train in Buffalo and at their new era field training complex. So the Bills are starting training camp. They released Ray Ray McLeod, a guy who I think Isaiah McKenzie and Ray Ray McLeod are basically the same guy anyway. So you're only going to keep one of them. McKenzie does more things. He's a better receiver in-game, as good of a returner. I think much of that was a non-factor. The Bills have to win the the AFC East this year. They have to. The Patriots have been hit by opt-outs, and I don't think they're the only team that's going to deal with this. I think as players start looking at what's going on in Major League Baseball, They're going to start thinking, you know, my family, I've got a young child at home. I live with my mother, father. They're not in the greatest of health. 
I don't know that this is a good idea. And I think you're going to see people step away. The Chiefs lost, lost a starting guard because he is a doctor on the front lines fighting COVID and decided that was more important than playing football. But the Patriots over the last couple of days have lost a number of players. And last night we found out that they're starting right tackle Marcus Cannon was going to step away from football. We also found out this morning that Dante Hightower, their only returning starting linebacker from that great defense of last year, has also opted out, as has backup running back Brandon Bolden. Bolden's one of those Bill Belichick guys who plays multiple positions, could do multiple things, and gives them a lot other than just statistically. Behind Marcus Cannon is Corey Cunningham. Remember, Dante Scarnecchia is no longer coaching in New England. The offensive line for Cam Newton and or Jared Stidham, whoever the starting quarterback is going to be, and Sony Michelle, is going to play a huge part in either the success or the failure of the Patriots this season. That is another big loss up front. But the real issue to me is the linebacker situation. You, I'm reading the depth chart now. Shalik... Calhoun is a starting linebacker, backed up by a second-round pick in this year's draft. Juwan Bentley is another one. He was a fifth-round pick in 2018, backed up by a college football free agent, Therese Hall. Brandon Copeland comes over from the Jets, where he was a pretty average player. Again, backed up by a rookie this year, Anthony Jennings. So the Patriots, who just simply don't seem to invest high picks on their defense have very little depth on this defense. I know it's Belichick and I know he can out scheme anybody, but at some point you've got to have the talent to make the plays. The Patriots don't have that talent right now on defense. And I think this is an opportunity again for the bills to win this division and the bills must, this is an absolute must. When they go to New England to play the Patriots and they're in Foxborough, that's a must-win game. That is a game that absolutely 1,000% has to be won by the Buffalo Bills. You've got to go in there and knock the crap out of that team because you have to defeat a champion by knocking them out. Patriots are the champion. The Bills are the challenger. They absolutely must go in there and knock that team out. And if they can't do it, Well, it's a big problem, and it's showing that this team isn't where many people think it should be. So it's interesting to look at it, what's going on, and I do think as we get closer to the regular season, you're going to see more and more players opt out. I think it's just natural. Players get information. They start to see when things happen how they happen, and how things are unfolding in Major League Baseball, and it's going to be an effect. Week 16 is the Patriots game in Foxborough. That is a night game on Monday night. That's a must win. Mark it down. The Bills, they may have everything clinched by then. I don't care. They may be out of it by then. I don't care. If you're going to be the team to beat, step forward and beat the Patriots. The AFC East had another big thing happen this weekend. 
The New York Jets traded their outspoken safety, Jamal Adams, to Seattle. Adams went on a Twitter tirade this weekend, blasting incompetent coach Adam Gase. And that was arguably the final straw. But I do think that Joe Douglas, the GM for the Jets, got an offer from Seattle that he looked at and said, yes, I have to do this. The question I have is, is that really the right decision? Sam Darnold's in the third year, and I talked about Sam and where he's at with his development. The Jets have reworked the offensive line in front of him, haven't given him very much in the line of talent at the wide receiver position. Le'Veon Bell is still there, who could potentially be a huge difference for Darnold if the offensive line can do its job. Defensively, Jamal Adams, Kenan Williams, they were the centerpieces of that Jets defense. Add C.J. Mosley at the linebacker position. You've got a star player at all three levels. Unfortunately, Adams didn't want to be in New York. It's that simple to me. This is a kid who can play. He is a hell of a safety. And, you know, people say, well, you don't pay a safety. But to me, Jamal Adams is much more than just a safety. This is a guy who can play the position differently. He can go about things in a different way. You do pay Jamal Adams because he can play linebacker in your nickel. He can rush the passer. He can do everything on the football team field to make your team better. The Jets got back what many consider a great haul. Two number one draft picks. They also got a third. They gave up a fourth. And they got starting safety from Seattle, Brandon McDougal. McDougal's 30 years old in the last year of his deal. He is somebody to plug in. He's adequate. He's not Jamal Adams. He's not close to Jamal Adams. He'll fit in nicely alongside Marcus May, though, and give the Jets a decent safety tandem. They're not going to be hurting there. They are still weak at the corner position. But the Jets now have two number one picks each of the next two years. They've also, again, like I said, they gave up a fourth and got a third. The reality is the fourth and the third, they almost cancel out. Because the third, where Seattle drafts, is more so at the end of the round. The Jets, where they're going to draft, likely at the beginning of the round. So when you look at that point value chart, the third and the fourth for the Jets and the the Seahawks this year, it's going to be minimal, the difference. So that's a non-starter. One of those two first-round picks you've got to use to replace the talent you gave up in Jamal Adams. Likely, again, the Seahawks are going to be picking in the 20s, somewhere along the line. Whether it's 28 or 21, you're in the 20s. At 21, can you find a replacement for Jamal Adams? And the following year is similar. You're going to have that 21st pick where you can then supplement your defense. Another very good player. Here's the reality. I don't believe the Jets made this trade, A, to rid themselves of Jamal Adams, B, to put themselves in a position to replace him with the picks they got. I think there's much something much smarter at hand by Joe Douglas. Joe Douglas is a good GM. This guy is going to do good things with the Jets if the Jets allow him to be there. Remember, Woody Johnson is in trouble for some things that he said as the ambassador to the United Kingdom 
He's said some sexist and racist things. Whether or not he's going to be allowed to keep the Jets, we'll see. That's kind of quieted out a little bit after initially being a very big story. But what I think Joe Douglas is doing here is smart. Similar to when Brandon Bean made the trade for Cordy Glenn and moved up from 21 in the draft to number 11. He put himself in position. It was a deal to put yourself in a spot to make the next deal. And I think that's what Joe Douglas did here. The Jets now are going to have a very high draft pick. They're going to be a top 10 team. Well, they said we're not punting on the season. I don't believe this team has got the ability to win. I thought they were maybe a seven-win team anyway. Now I think they're a five- or six-win team. They're going to be a top-10 team. They've got two first-round picks and an extra pick next year from Seattle. Think about what is going to happen. If there's a college football season, we know who the first two picks likely are going to be in next year's NFL draft. Either order you want, Justin Fields, quarterback at Ohio State, or Trevor Lawrence, the quarterback at Clemson. Now, if you're a Jet fan, you we got Sam Darnold. He's great. I just told you about Sam Darnold. He's not great. There's as many questions about Sam Darnold as there are about Josh Allen, and those questions are significant. And here's the most important part. The most important part of Sam Darnold is he wasn't picked by Joe Douglas. The previous regime selected Sam Darnold. You always want your guys, right? Joe Douglas didn't move on from Adam Gates. He will after this year. And if you're a new quarterback, if you're, if you're a new coach, you want your guy. Think of the hiring ability of Joe Douglas when it comes to a coach where he says, hey, look, I've got Darnold. I can move him. I've got these extra picks. We can get either Fields or Lawrence, and you can start your Jets tenure with your quarterback going forward. I truly believe the move was made with eyes looking forward. Because, let's face it, I could be dead wrong on Sam Darnold, and he could come out this year and ball out and show everybody that he was worthy of that third pick in the draft and that he is a guy to build around. But to me, Sam Darnold is the same guy I've seen since I saw him at USC. Can make every throw there is to make and will wow you with his talent. And then will stun you with stupid plays. It just is the way he, he is. He has an ability that he could be great. He also has an inability to be consistently smart with the football. Nothing's changed with Sam Darnold from his USC days to two years into the NFL. He's still very talented. He's still very erratic. And most coaches don't want a quarterback like that. They'd much rather have a level, consistent quarterback. Also, Joe Douglas, if he's going to truly put his stamp on this team, he would like to do so with his own quarterback. For Seattle, Russell Wilson is one of the five best players, in my opinion, in the NFL. Russell Wilson's one of the few quarterbacks who can win games by himself, and he's done so now for the last couple of years since they dismantled that great Seattle defense. It's been all Russell Wilson up in Seattle. Well, now that defense 
is starting to get good again. And Jamal Adams will make that defense very good. Huge piece for Seattle going forward. They've got a lot of work to do financially to make this guy happy. But, man, you gave up that much. Something tells me you knew you were going to have to pay him. Good move for Seattle. A couple things about the NBA before we get out. The NBA bubble seems to be working fine. Again, I mentioned earlier the games begin this weekend. The games then that are going on now are being played. We're not having positive tests. We're not having big things happen. Injuries aren't really a big part other than Domitas Sabonis, the very good young player for Indiana. Indiana's the fifth seed in the East, so this is a significant injury for them. The games start Thursday night. The ratings are going to be huge. It's just a matter of the players sticking to the bubble. The big story this week, and I love this story because it's still going on, is about Lou Williams, the Clippers reserve guard who is a throwback. I love Lou Williams because back when I thought the NBA was great, every team that was good had a guy who came off the bench who could just fill it up. None better than the Pistons' microwave Johnson. Vinny Johnson came in, chuck it. Lou Williams is kind of that way. He's a reserve guard who comes in, and you expect him to get 16 points a game and maybe more. And Lou could go for a lot. He's been around this game a long time, savvy veteran, can shoot it, can play. But Lou Williams had to leave the bubble because of a family funeral. He stopped by a strip club. To pick up dinner. Now, I know what you're saying. You stop by a strip club to pick up dinner. Apparently, the strip club is called Magic City. It's in Atlanta, and I found out it's legendary. And its wings, apparently, are legendary. Lou Williams has his own wing sauce there. The Lou Will, they call it. Yeah, he's on the menu, Lou Will. So, when he was photographed in Magic City, in his mind, just waiting for a pickup order. Notice he didn't call it in. He was waiting for a pickup order and got photographed. He now has to have a 10-day quarantine before he could join the Clippers. And there's been a lot of discussion about this. Look, dude is in a strip joint. Whether he's picking up wings or he's there for why the real reason you go to a strip joint, he went out of the bubble and went to a family funeral and then stopped by a strip joint. I I just find it funny to think that, hey, uh, I'm going to grab some wings on the way home. You want me to stop by the barrel and grab some? Like, who stops by the strip joint to pick up wings? And again, Magic City's maybe got great wings. I noticed, though, that, again, Lou didn't call ahead. It's not like one of those where you call ahead and you go in and grab the wings so you don't even have to go in. No, Lou went in, sat down at a table, and then ordered his wings. And, you know, I spent the next 10, 15 minutes probably watching whatever was on stage. I mean, on TV. It's probably a game or something. Look, dude, you were at a strip club. I'm... Not sure how they have the mask wearing thing in the strip club, but when you're in the bubble and you leave the bubble, 
you can't do it. Whether you stop by Magic City for some magic or some wings, you got to pay the price. But it's my favorite story coming out of the bubble. That and Bull Bull, Minute's son. Kid played at Oregon, messed up his knee. You saw him early on last year against Syracuse. And at 7-12 or whatever this kid is, looks like his dad, long, but way more athletic than his father was. He was somebody who you thought could make a difference. And then he got hurt, fell to the 44th pick in the draft. Well, in the scrimmages or exhibitions, whatever you want to call them, this kid's been spectacular. And it's fun to watch. And I think a lot of people are going to tune in and look at him and be like, wow, that's that's a pretty amazing thing. NHL gets going. They have some things going on today, as a matter of fact, for exhibition games. If you're an NFL or an NHL fan, this is going to be like Christmas because when these games start Saturday and Sunday, each day, five games starting at noon, and they're all going to be broadcast on NBCSN or USA Network. So if you're a hockey fan, and sorry, Sabre fans, they're not playing, these qualifying series, best of five, they're going to be on TV all the time. This is like March Madness. For hockey, next Monday and Tuesday, there are six games starting at noon. If you're a hockey fan, this is fantastic stuff. Thus far, their bubble system seems to be working well. No positive tests. They're not baseball. And, you know, again, I got to throw this out there. The NFL, which is not going to do a pod system, not going to do a bubble, they're looking at three sports right now, how they're handling it. Hockey. Seems to be doing quite well. Basketball seems to be doing quite well. Baseball is a joke. Who is football going to emulate? They're going to do what what baseball's doing because of greed. I, I just don't think it's a good decision. And I think the only way the NFL season gets p- played in a timely manner and gets completed, more importantly, gets completed on schedule, is with a pod system. Not going to happen, which means that I don't believe the season will be seamless. I don't think that happens. i got to point out something that happened over the weekend. The Arizona Coyotes, who are in Edmonton, and they are playing games this weekend. For the first time since 2012, they, they made the playoffs. They've lost their general manager. John Chaka has left the team. And, you know, Often when a GM leaves a team, you hear both sides say, you know, it's a great opportunity. just, you know, time for me to do something else. The team thanks him for his services and all this. I don't think the Coyotes were all that happy with John Chaka leaving the organization. Here's the statement the team put out to announce their general manager leaving. Quote, John Chica has quit as general manager and president of hockey operations of the Arizona Coyotes. The club is disappointed in his actions and his timing as the Coyotes prepare to enter the NHL's hub city of Edmonton, where the team will begin postseason play for the first time since 2012. Chica has chosen to quit on a strong and competitive team, a dedicated staff, and the Arizona Coyote fans, the greatest fans in the NHL, end quote. Don't sugarcoat it. How do you really feel? Holy crap. Now, there was some rumor that another team was going to 
hired John Shake and that other team may reside in Buffalo. No word yet if that's what's happening or going to happen. But John Shake didn't exactly leave a whole lot of good good vibes when he walked out the door in Arizona. Last thing, Mike Tyson is coming back. He is going to fight Roy Jones Jr. in an exhibition. Tyson's 53 years old. If you've seen his training videos, he looks amazing. Roy Jones Jr. never was one who took punches all that well. I don't think this is going to be a long fight. I think that Tyson will likely take care of things quickly. But I got to tell you, maybe it's the lack of sports that I've had over the last four months, or maybe it's just the fact that I've watched Mike Tyson since he was an 18-year-old kid in uh, Catskill, New York. Maybe it's that. I don't know what it is, the nostalgia of his once great career, but I'll be watching. Mike Tyson fighting for real. I'm definitely signed up for this one. Have a great week, everybody. Thanks for listening. We'll talk next week. I'm Carl Falk. This is the Falcon Around Podcast. <laughs>